From Steel Valley Media, this is the Frosty Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Frosty Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Frost. Tony gets another deserved day off. Season two, right around the corner, and we're going to have some big ACT news on the way. But for now, we have a very special guest, a coach from our league, and legal retainer. Is that the right word, Kevin? Legal retainer? No. No. What's the, what's the right what's the right uh, the right phrase I, there? Well, I mean, so what you're thinking of is like if I was the league's lawyer, I would be on retainer. There it is. The league's lawyer on retainer, Kevin Hewell. Kevin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> That's the most awkward introduction to a podcast interview ever. But you know, I didn't know what the phrase was. So Kevin hey. helped me out. You know what? It's all good, man. <laughs> so, all right, Kevin, you, you've been a lawyer now for a while. Um, I know you've had a bunch of different jobs. Give us the rundown. Kevin Hewlett's law career in like 30 seconds. Go. Okay. So um, my first job was I worked in the Ohio Attorney General's office in Columbus, Ohio. I actually had two different jobs there. I was there for from September of 2015 to July. Um, for half that time, I worked in this group called the Employment Group. Then the other half, I worked in this group called Constitutional Offices, which represented the statewide office holders in litigation. Um, it was a mix between employment cases for the first half, and then the second half was mainly election cases. Um, that was when people, this was during the presidential primary of 2016, people were suing the state election officers for things like ballot access. Um, I think that was already 30 seconds, but that was just the first job. Uh, one thing you'll learn is that lawyers talk a lot. <laughs> You're Especially fine. You got time. I, you got time. <laughs> well, I, I will tell you this. Uh, when I, you know, when I would go talk to what, like, Lawyers that are more experienced love talking about what they've done. And if you go into their office and talk about something, they'll just go for a while and tell you all these stories. But uh, I guess so I guess I'm, I'm following that path right now. Uh, so this is kind of a rough moment personally. But <laughs> uh, the, so the next job is I stayed in Columbus and then I worked at a private law firm that was like a it'd be considered like a business litigation boutique. It was founded by these attorneys from a large international law firm that decided to break, they wanted to break off and start their own firm. I worked there for over a year. And um, for, for those listeners that I uh, would see from living there, they knew that I hated that job. It was miserable. Um, it was very time demanding. I mean, all my jobs have been time demanding, but that one was like time demanding and I, there were a lot of people that were just very, seemed very unhappy with working there. And I was one of them, although I did a good job of not seeming unhappy, <laughs> I guess. Uh, but like, you know, and that, that job we represented mainly, we, it was like all representing pretty much all companies. And when they were either suing other companies or getting sued by individuals or other companies, 
then I was able to find kind of an escape route where I moved back to Youngstown for a temporary position. Um, I spent a year working for a federal judge, which was a pretty cool job, but uh, it's it's a job that a lot of young lawyers take where it they're they're pretty hard to get. I was really lucky to get it. Um, but you you work for a, a judge writing draft versions of opinions and, uh, you know, the, all the different cases that the judge would have. Um, it's great because you can see, you know, if there's, there's like when I was there, there were four trials. And so um, I would see lawyers in court arguing in trial, um, figuring out, and I'd see what would happen from a case from the beginning to the end of the process. And through that, I'd see what the judge's thoughts were as the case was evolving and how she would work through the legal problems. And it, it's, that's very beneficial for a young lawyer because then they could, the idea is you do that job for a year and then you go out and you do the rest of your career and you have all that experience from that year of seeing what happens inside a judge's chambers. Um, so that was, uh, that was a really nice job. Um, it, was, it was more relaxed too because you know it's working for the the government and it does it's not the same as having the demands of working for a client who has emergencies where they need an answer now um, but after that I moved to Cleveland where I now work at a plaintiff side law firm where we do civil cases where we represent people that are injured in various different ways, and we sue uh, the entities that we say cause, we believe causes injuries. Um, I guess a lot of the uh, cases that the firm takes on, but I really don't do, are medical malpractice cases where we sue most times the Cleveland Clinic or University Hospitals or the various other healthcare systems in uh, Northeast Ohio. But what I, the cases I work on more are either civil rights cases or what I would call business litigation cases, which are class actions representing consumers, often against large companies. Like, uh, for instance, we have uh, a, a few lawsuits now where we're suing banks for some of their practices that we say have harmed consumers, and their clients. Um, I'm sorry, their customers. And then, uh, I mean, I'm also I'm also working on a case where we're suing various hospitals for violating, we say violating data privacy concerns. Uh, I also have a case right now that we're, that's like a toxic tort. We're alleging these entities and that operate a nuclear facility in South, Southern Ohio have uh, harmed property owners in the area by releasing contaminants into the environment. So that was only like five minutes of 30 seconds. Yeah, I mean, that's what I expect. When I said 30 seconds, I expected at least five minutes because um, I, I know about this whole lawyer thing. You ask a lawyer a question, you get five stories. So I was prepared for that. I was prepared. And I think our listeners were, too. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I can I could tell you that I also studied economics. And there's a story about economics. If you present a problem to five econo economists, you'll get seven answers. So. You know, I think I, I'm just very well trained in all of this. So, Kevin, one of the things that that I've I've kind of picked up over the years is that I think when when we 
what I think what lawyers do, I think really trial. Um, I picture, you know, because I think it's what we see on TV, right? We've all seen yeah. the grinder. And if we haven't seen the grinder, we need to see the grinder. But we think about like these trial lawyers. You know, what, mm-hmm. do you have trial experience? Is that something that's common in, in the practice of law? So I would say, one, I do have trial experience. Two, it's not common. Um, yeah. So three, etc. Um, let's see. So last year I went to trial, although I didn't do anything. I was second chair. I just kind of sat there the whole time. I did like some work behind the scenes. Um, but trials rare, like in this. So in the civil context, trials really rare. Um, even in, in criminal cases, like if you're a prosecutor, you could get a lot of trials, but you'd be trying misdemeanor cases because those are the cases that go to trial. And you'd also get some felony cases, but um, most, I think most people notice that most criminal cases end up playing out like over 95%. Um, in the civil arena, the trial is even more rare because one, there's a lot of mechanism that defendants can use to suss out lawsuits so as to not make it to trial. And so in those instances, the defendant wins entirely and the plaintiffs get nothing. But more often what happens is once uh, the lawsuit gets to a certain stage, the parties want to settle to avoid trial because trial is very expensive and very demanding. Like if we are to have a, so I guess this is an easy example. I was second chair on a medical malpractice case last summer. The case took like uh, over a year and a half to get to trial. So there's a lot that goes into getting there. Um, the cost of taking the case to trial, like to take a, to take a medical malpractice case to trial costs over $100,000. So that's a lot of risk for a plaintiff's firm to take because the way most plaintiff's firms work is, and if you actually have a case, you'd want to go this route. Um, if you, so the client doesn't pay anything. The firm pays all the costs of the case. So they're bearing all the risk. So like in a case like that, my firm has paid, has invested over a hundred thousand dollars into this case. And that is through like various filing costs and costs to obtain depositions and, you know, get those depositions uh, transcribed and recorded. Um, but the, a huge amount of costs are for like legal experts for um, like in medical malpractice case, you need experts to come in and talk about how the doctors in the case violated the standard of care. And you need an expert to come in and explain what the damages are. You need an expert to explain what the treatment for to remedy the situation is. So, um, you know, my firm advertises itself as a firm of trial lawyers, and that's definitely true. But even then, you know, the attorney that took the case to trial, he told me he hadn't had a case that went to trial in like three years before that. Um, he's taken, I don't know, probably like close to 15 cases to trial in his career. And that's like a really high number. Um, you know, we... In another case, like a business class action case that could have went to trial, but we settled, um, 
I was on the phone one day talking to the lawyer on the other side who worked at a mega law firm. And he had, you know, he said, oh, you know, I'm, uh, in, we were just talking. He's like, I, you know, I've been, you know, big, a partner at a major law firm. I haven't been to trial in over 15 years. Wow. Because, well, like when I went to trial, even though I wasn't like examining any witnesses or making the opening statement or making the closing argument, that was all I did for the day, like every day. You know, I'd get up at like 7 a.m. and I'd get ready and then I'd go into work and I'd pick up the stuff that I need. Then I'd walk down to the courthouse and I'd be at the courthouse all day until like, you know, the, the trial day would end at like, let's say, 4.30 or 5.00. And then me and the other attorney, we'd go back to the office and we'd be in the office until like 10 o'clock at night or, you know, if necessary, we'd have to be there later too, to just prepare for the next day of trial. And that lasted, the trial in that case was like maybe eight days. And then in the time leading up to trial, you're spending all your time working on it too. Like, you know, uh, for like the two weeks before I was working every day, you know, going into work and being there the whole day, same thing on the weekends too. So trial is very draining and it's like the, it's, it's the only thing in your life for the most part for that period of time. So that's another reason why cases don't go to trial because it's a lot of work and it's a lot of risk because, you know, you either come away with something or you come away with nothing um you know and if you're the defendant you either walk away with nothing or you you know you get a big verdict against you and then what you can do is you can try and appeal that verdict and that would let things drag on for years because the appeals process takes a long time but at the end of the day you have this verdict against you that you may eventually have to pay so a lot of times people just want to avoid that Especially, you know, in what we do, we represent people that don't, that the, the money that they get in the settlement would make a huge impact on their life. So it's hard to, you know, it's hard to walk away if someone's offering a lot of money, even though you could go to trial and get a lot more. That's, that's really interesting. And then that's, that's kind of what I've, I guess I didn't realize how rare trial was. I knew it was something that a lot of lawyers didn't do. But I had thought that lawyers that, that did do trial law were were in trials fairly often. Um, so there, that's, that's really so there, fascinating. There are like a handful of people that are in trial constantly. But those are the people that are like at the pinnacle of the profession. You know, what the, and they're, they're it's ex, like, you know, we say we're trial lawyers. They're like the trial lawyers where they don't do anything except get parachuted in on a case like a month before the trial. And that's all they work on is that trial until it ends. And that's it. Um, but those okay. people, they've been, you know, no, like someone my age would never do that. That's someone who's been a lawyer for over, you know, 20 or 30 years. And so they have, you know, all this time of courtroom experience. See, the things we're going to learn on this podcast this is going to be fascinating. <laughs> So, Kevin, I feel like, you know, lawyers get sometimes a bad rap, um, but at the same time, it's, you know, like you get the commencement speeches, right? Whereas I look out and I see doctors and lawyers and, you know, it, it's this highly regarded profession, but at the same time, 
it's almost a little like snake like like what mm-hmm. what's your what's your take on that well i think that's right um you know i think the reason people think that it's like a highly regarded profession is it takes a lot of education um because you have to you know get your bachelor's degree then you have to go to law school for three years and you have to take the bar um and you know the also a lot of people you know like especially a lot of people in like congress they were lawyers and like you know a lot past presidents were lawyers like bill clinton and barack obama were both lawyers so and then there's the kind of the the view that if you're a lawyer you can there's people tell me like you know when they talk about careers and stuff oh you could do a lot of things with being a lawyer well that's not really been my experience because you know it's a professional school so you're supposed to be being taught about a profession um but at the same time a lot of lawyers you know a lot of people have like pretty poor views of lawyers um you know a lot of people think of like lawyers as like ambulance chasers and then like you know uh even though there are a lot of lawyers in congress that's also kind of like a downside of lawyers because people have generally negative views of congress then you have you know like uh I mean, for the better call Saul fans, Saul Goodman is a lawyer, and he's not exactly the most morally upright person. Um, and, it, you know, it's interesting. One thing that a lawyer told me was, uh, and this involves, I guess, uh, word association. You know, a lot of psychologists study what people think about when they think about certain words. And so one of the common ones is... Um, when people think of cars, the thought that's evoked in their mind is freedom. And so when you're watching commercials on TV and you see cars, that's why you see them driving through this open space. Because at least in America, there's this idea that if you have a car, you can go anywhere and kind of like this whole, you know, manifest destiny, venture out west and find your own way. Um, the, The word that most people associate doctors with as hero because they think of like, a, you know, the someone coming into the ER with a gunshot wound and the doctor performing emergency surgery to save someone's life or someone having a heart attack. And, you know, as they have a heart attack, they go to the doctor and the doctor saves their life. Um, I, I don't know what the word association for lawyer is, but uh, I think uh, for a lot of people it involves, you know, uh, it would involve something of dishonesty. I mean, when you think about it, when we, you know, we like either there's like a defense side attorney, a prosecutor or what have you, or in like, you know, what I do or I'm a plaintiff's lawyer. I mean, you know, some people like that, but then there's a lot of people that think, oh, well, they're just, you know, they're like the ambulance chaser who's who's just doing anything to get money for themselves. Or, you know, even if someone that you help out. They think that, oh, I got all, I won all this money. You know, I went to trial and I won $2 million. Well, actually, I didn't win $2 million. I end up netting a lot less because, you know, my lawyer takes either a third or 40% plus costs. And the costs can be like $100,000. Hmm. Well, when I think, when I think lawyer, like, well, yeah, that's the thing. Like, you think, you think what you see on TV, right? Like personal mm-hmm. injury attorneys. And yeah. I don't, I don't know, like what percentage. I don't even know, like if you know, like what percentage of law does that make up? Like, is that a majority or is that like just a really vocal minority? 
Um, well, it's a big part of the profession, but there's, it's not a majority because there's like so many different things. Um, like what, so what I do, I've done like a ton of different jobs in litigation, but that's only like, you know, a small part of law because, you know, there's, uh, you know, there's a huge other, like the main other bucket is transactional law, which is like, you know, uh, mergers and acquisitions or like if a company needs to raise money, uh, papering the process for them to raise money. Or, you know, uh, an agent is a transactional lawyer, really, because they're they're negotiating a contract. Um, you know, then you have like from there, there's other forms of transactional law, like estate planning, which is, you know, drafting up a will. And uh, then there's like tax lawyers who are I don't I don't really know the difference between them and accountants, except one went to law school and the other's a CPA. You know what I mean? Where yeah. like, I mean. Yeah, I do know that a tax lawyer could potentially go to tax court, but what they do is pretty similar to accountants. Like, you know, I took a tax course in law school and a lot of it was just math. You know, there, there was a little bit of figuring out some principles on the exam, but a lot of it was then just doing, doing that and then putting it into calculations. So, you know, there's, there's a ton of different, and then that's not even ta- considering like, you know, IP attorneys um, or like, you know, attorneys that just work in-house for companies or, so there's, I mean, it's a, it's a broad field, I guess, um, which is why there's a lot of lawyers, but there's also, I mean, there's a lot of pitfalls to the job where, you know, a lot of people go to law school and they don't have good career outcomes and they're like stuck with, you know, they went to school and potentially accrued a lot of debt. And so, now they're getting jobs or they're not able to pay down that debt. And actually, well, some of them, a lot of people just don't even find jobs as lawyers. Like, uh, let's see, like, you know, at my school, pretty much everyone gets to become a lawyer. There's varying levels of what you want to be as a lawyer, but um, a lot of them all become lawyers. But at some of these schools, you know, People just don't. They just never get that opportunity because there's so many people that go to law school every year and there's kind of a, a, a limited market of jobs out there. Well, is, so is that is that well understood by people who are applying in there? Like, do they know there's a there's a uh, a decent chance that I'm not going to be able to practice what I what I went into law school to practice? Or is it kind of like people get like blindsided at the end when they don't land those jobs? Um. There's a lot of misconceptions and schools used to really um, funnel those misconceptions, like, or I guess well, that's not the right word, but like they would sell those misconceptions. Like, for instance, in college, I, I wrote this paper talking about how schools distort employment statistics. They used to. Now there's like a national clearinghouse that uh, protects against it. But like, for instance, there's a. I compared the data for the University of Virginia and the University and uh, New York Law School, which is, you know, a law school in New York that's not NYU, but you know, even some people may have that misconception. Mm-hmm. Um, they both advertise that their median salary for uh, starting lawyers that was like was over a hundred thousand dollars, which for Virginia that was pretty close to accurate because they showed you the data that under that went into that 
like they surveyed like 90% of their students and they, you know, pulled the data on that. And so that, that median number is coming from 90% of your student body or your graduating class. Whereas New York law school did that, but they only hold like 10% of people. And so the people that are reporting that data are at the top of the class that have positive outcomes. So Yes, if you're if you're one of like the top 20 students in New York law school, you're probably going to get a job or you have a good chance of getting a job at one of the large New York firms that would pay you over $100,000 a year. But in reality, that's only, you know, 10 students or 15 students of a class of over 100. So, you know, the school was saying that you're getting this outcome, but it's not that's not true for the vast majority of the students. I feel like that's risky as a law school who's putting out lawyers to, to like, well, to fudge numbers. You would think, but I mean, people just didn't, a lot of students didn't think to look at, look at the look beyond that because, you know, the, most people that go to law school are really competitive and they're, uh, they're also used to being like viewed as like a, a pretty good student who did well. So, you know, if, if they, if, you know, if, if they're getting into New York law school, they, they w- want to believe that New York law school is going to give them a good outcome and that, you know, they worked hard to get there. And, uh, you know, this is the data that the school is telling me. I'm not going to, the school's not going to lie to me. Um, and then there's, I mean, there's additional stuff like this is less, this is less prevalent now, but it's, it still exists. There's for-profit law schools and some of them are, are just degree mills where they don't care. Like, uh, there's a school in Michigan called Cooley, the Thomas Cooley Law School. It actually created its own rankings to make it seem like it was a better school than it is. There's there was a school in Charlotte, I forget what it was called, but it got shut down because you know the students weren't actually getting a valid education. And these schools, like they'll pretty much accept anyone as long as you can, you know, you have like a college diploma and you have uh, um, you you've taken the LSAT. And, you know, what they would do is for, for some of these schools, if they would say like, oh, well, you technically don't, you know, you're not getting in normally, but what we'll do is if you go to the special intensive program, like, you know, for however many weeks over the summer or something, we will admit you if you pass that. So, you know, a lot of these schools at towards the lower and they do, they, they have a lot of shady tactics to try and get school to get students in because that then they get all sorts of money because law school is extremely expensive and they're a lot, you know, they can say, well, we're, we're charging not our, our cost of education isn't as high as some of these other schools. And so, you know, people take out the loans to go there and then they'll get, they'll get the money through federal loans because, you know, as long as you're an accredited school, you can, you can, you can take in students that receive federal student loans. Wow. That's shocking. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was really bad uh, a while ago, like when I was going to law school. Um, 
in the time since it has improved and especially with like there's now uh, a uniform system where people have to report their data and here's another example that I didn't mention um, in order so employment data what you report is like at the time of graduation and then you report nine months after the fact and what you used to be able to report was that anyone that had a job anywhere could consider themselves employed. So like, you know, if I, even if I wasn't a lawyer, if I worked at, you know, a restaurant as a waiter, I could, I, the school could count me as employed in their employment data. Okay. Now they've, they've modified it so that they, they suss out, whether it's a job that requires a Juris Doctorate or if it's a job where a Juris Doctorate is preferred. Like there's certain, you know, some people kind of, and this is not a lot, but there's some people that go into um, fields that are not, you don't have to be a licensed lawyer, but it's, it's adjacent to that field. For instance, I know someone that works for an organization that is a in DC, it's like a policy advocacy organization that has lawyers but also doesn't have lawyers. So, you know, okay. that job okay. would be a, a JD preferred job. But the real troublesome thing is what schools used to do is they would hire a bunch of their students, like their graduates that didn't have jobs, they would hire them and pay them like fifteen dollars an hour to be like a, you know, like a research assistant or they, they, they call them fellowships and they would have them do, I don't know what, a lot of times it was just like research for professors or whatever. They would count those people as fully employed and there would be no, you know, and that would be like a, you know, a JD required job, but there, or at least a JD preferred job. And there'd be no indication that the school was the one paying them. And some schools did like that a lot. Um, like George Washington in DC, they would hire like 40 students a year to do that. So that, and I think their class is like, you know, maybe 200 and something students. So that's, that's a sizable percentage, potentially like, you know, up to like 10 or 15% of their class where they would do that. Now schools are required to indicate when it's the school or an organization related to the school that's paying someone's salary nine months out. Because what would happen is these schools would hire those people. They'd give them like, you know, a 10 month contract or whatever. So then they could say after nine months that they're employed and it would reflect positively for the school. Right. And then a month later they drop them. Yeah. And like, I mean, you know, no school's immune to this. Um, like, so every law school has an admitted students weekend where they um, would, you know, it, and like what a lot of colleges do where you could come and if you're choosing between different schools or even if you're not choosing between different schools, you could come and there'd be like a, you know, a Friday and a Saturday of stuff to like sell you on the school of why you should go there. Sure. And, and so, um, you know, I did that. Um, and they like, they like some schools, like my school even give you, gives you a voucher, and, you know, depending on how far you come so that you, you know, you have, so it pays the cost of travel and potentially your lodging, or they like do things to like students, like at my school students volunteered and they do every year to host in, you know, uh, people for admitted students weekend. Um, but 
you know, uh, some years at Virginia, I didn't see it the year that I was there, but I know it happened the year prior, and I know it happened year, like years that I was there, but not on a students' weekend. That, you know, the, the people who are at, towards in their 3 year that don't have a job lined up, they would, you know, wear shirts and wear them around that would say like $200,000 of debt and no job. Oh, wow. If I was a student or probably more so a student's parent, I would be very concerned. Yeah. Especially when the school's telling you all of these, you know, employment numbers. Mm-hmm. And so I'll tell you, like, I didn't get a job out of law school. Um, you know, it just didn't work out. But I got a fellowship through the school and like it. It wasn't like one of those um, ones where they pay you $15 to do whatever. Like the school paid like a, a fair salary for me to take it and go to an organization that I wanted to as long as it met certain criteria. Like it had to be pretty much like a public interest organization or something related to that. There was, you know, these provisions to qualify. But like, you know, they do that every year for students. And the point of it was, and it, it's very, it was very successful that you go to one of these, you know, these organizations. A lot of times it was like a prosecutor's office or, um, you know, like uh, what's the, uh, a nonprofit organization that does legal aid type work. Like, or for me, I went to the attorney general's office. Like this Virginia, the Virginia Foundation was paying my salary while I did that. And they were do it for up to a year. With the idea that, you know, I'll, you'd have students that would that would go there, and they'd work there, and then eventually that organization would hire them. And so, you know, like for some people, they'd spend like a few months there, and the organization would say, okay, we're going to bring you on our payroll. Um, and so then you'd you'd have like a you know full time job lined up, um, and that's something that Virginia did every, and I, they still do it every year to provide like a pathway to people that didn't get a job otherwise or that, you know, want to go in the public interest route because the en- the entry opportunities for public interest are so limited. For instance, a prosecutor's office. Like, I, during law school, I worked in a prosecutor's office that had, like, it was, it was a relatively larger one in Virginia, and it had, like, 12 attorneys. So, you know, they, they can't really afford to bring someone on who's never done anything you know, they they need someone that has some experience that they could hand a stack of misdemeanor cases to and they could go down to, you know, the the court for that and on a Wednesday and just knock out all those cases for that day. Um, so it's really helpful for an organization like that, because, you know, if someone else is paying, you can, you know, like you're getting a student that went to the University of Virginia for law school and they have, you know, this is an area that they're interested in. They could learn from an attorney for a few months and then they could you could hand them cases and then if you think oh you know they have they, they can do it then you decide okay well we now we have an opening coming up so we can bring them on board as opposed to what they would normally do is they would have to seek people you know do a normal application process where they'd have to have people that have like x amount of experience and they don't really know what they're getting yeah, and that, that seems a lot more palatable for for that organization. Which I mean, it seems like a yeah. great program. And you know, you're, you're talking about kind of like the shady ones before that, mm-hmm. but this sounds like 
I mean, it doesn't sound shady. It sounds like it's fairly on oh, the yeah. up and up. It, it, it's it's much different. Um, and there's there's schools that do it like um, you know, all all like the top law schools have programs like that because they have the money to do it. And like, you know, even during that time, you could for like I and these top law schools also all have loan forgiveness programs for people that go into public interest. Like if you go into public interest within your first two years of practice, they will, you know, they'll have a program where they give you the money to make your your student loan payments. Oh, wow. And like but they like at Virginia, the program is tailored on the public loan service forgiveness program that the federal government has. So they're, they're paying those 10 years of payments for the idea that it would be forgiven. Now, my understanding is that Harvard and Virginia has qualifications. Like you have to, you have to enter that job within your first two years of legal practice. And it can't be like, uh, like a clerkship, which is working for a judge. It has to be like a full-time long-term position of working in public interest. Now, Harvard has more money and what they can do is they will, they can just, you know, any, pretty much any job where you make under a certain amount, they have, they will, as long as they feel that it falls within like what public interest is, they will pay your student loan payments for it. And there's not like this requirement that you have to be within two years of, um, you know, if you decide like four years in that that's what you want to do and you still have a lot of student loans, you know, that's a that's a much more viable option than it otherwise would be. Now, I, I guess my question is, is that because prior to that, folks weren't going into these sectors or is it more that they don't pay well and they're having like students like defaulting on their loans? Do you know? Um, so, well... People aren't going into them and defaulting, really. It's that people are choosing not to go in because they don't pay well and they have this student loan debt that they otherwise have to pay. Um, And for the school, you know, these schools, it's a a lot of people go to law school and they say, I want to be a public interest attorney. But then during your at a large law school during your second year. Like right the summer before your second year, these huge national law firms come like at Virginia, it's called OGI, on grounds interviews, where hundreds of law firms literally like I think the year that I did it, there were like over 500 offices of different law firms around the country came in and were interviewing students for summer internships for that for the 2L summer, the summer between your second and third year of law school. And that's what these mega firms do for entry level hiring. Like, you know, there's a handful of firms that hire over a uh, hundred, like, uh, I don't know what they're doing now because, because of the market, but like the year that I was doing it, like there were a handful of firms that were expecting to hire over a hundred students for their 2L summers with the idea that those, you know, 100, 125 students would be the incoming class of 2015 associates. So, in, and that that's in New York where there's kind of the most lawyers. Um, at other places around the country, it's smaller. Like, you know, the largest firm in Cleveland is Jones Day and they would their program would have like 20 students. 
So, you know, um, what, what I'm what I'm getting at is those programs. A lot of it is like you don't do a lot of work, and it's like to sell you on the the benefits of going into that that pathway. Um, and so, and also the starting salaries are just like massive. So people are very tempted into doing that. And so a lot of people say that they're going into public interest, but then decide that, well, I'd actually rather go to a firm at least for a few years where I can make a lot of money. And, you know, then, uh, I've come out to be marketable because, you know, if you, if you go to a good law school and you work at this firm, you're, it opens up a lot of doors or keeps a lot of doors open too. So how is law school set up? So how many years do you, like you talked about, you know, your 2L year, like how many, how many years of law school are there? Three years. Three years. Okay. So 2L to 3L, like that's, that's basically the summer before you graduate. Yeah. And so the way it works in 1L is that's like by far the most important year because one, everyone's taking pretty much the same classes. Like, you know, of the eight classes I took over two semesters, six of them were the same for everyone. I got to take two electives in the spring. Um, but you're you're also taking those classes against other 1L students. And so the way that schools grade is they grade on a bell curve. So um, it's very firms and, and other hiring entities that, you know, pay attention, can know, you know, based on your GPA about where you rank in the class of students at the school. Okay. And so, you know, for your 1L summer at a, at a, at a large law school like mine, for, for your 1L summer, people just work at various legal jobs and there's, it's not really that big of a thing. It's just you have to get a job. And it's very easy to get a job. A lot of times you don't get paid, though. But you, you know, you get a job so you can say that you got some legal experience over the summer. Then you come back a few weeks before the start of your 2L year. And that's when you have your on-grounds interview where all these places come and they're recruiting you for your your, um, 2L summer. And for a lot of people, at least people that are going the law firm route, where you work your two law summers, where you're going to work after law school. So, you know, pretty much for like some of my friends, once they got their jobs, once, you know, which they get at this, they go through this interview process, like they do the, the firm interviews and they go on their callbacks where they go, they go to whatever city the place is, the firm is at for an in-person interview and they get their job offer and they take that job, which puts you into like September so, like, you know, let's say someone accepts their um, firm's offer of a 2L summer job on September 15th. So pretty much on September 15th of your second year of law school, unless you really fuck it up or, like, the economy tanks or whatever, you know what you're going to be doing after law school, like, what city you're going to be living in and what firm you're going to be working at. So from there, the the motivation of law school really kind of kicks down and you just want to like kind of maintain your grades of where they're at or just not have them drop severely. Unless of course you're, uh, you know, you're trying to do something more like get like a really high level government job 
or clerk for a federal judge or things like that where your grades still then matter. But, you know, for, for a lot of people, once you, once you get your interview, you get your 2L summer job through OGI, the mo- the, all your motivations for law school are very limited. And it's just kind of like, you know, riding it out and having fun. Just like sur- surviving at that point. <laughs> well, like the, the, your, your, the amount of work you do just really plummets from there. Like, you know, one, you understand how to study for a law school exam. And pretty much everything in law school is all your final exam. I mean, there, there are some classes where you have to do assignments through the semester, but not really. And there are one or two paper classes you have to take. But, you know, for the most part, it's like if you have a job lined up at, during your 2L year and you're not like striving to, you know, clerk for like a federal judge or anything, if you're content with the summer offer that you have, then law school is like a really it's it's just like a huge breeze and I would have you do that, that for the next yeah well and you do that for the next two years so you you finish your your 3l year you graduate um you go through this this virginia you know the um the fellowship program uh where where did you end up there and i will i will tell you um and this is like, it, it sucked. Um, I did not get a job through like the OGI process. And it is like, so law school is really competitive. Like, and there's a culture where you don't share your grades or anything. I mean, you share it with your friends and it's supposed to be kind of like a secret, but like, you know, because it's all on a bell curve, it's, you know, people put a lot into, um, you know, the stock of where you are, um, you know, and what kind of, like what job you're getting and all of that. Like, even if, you know, as my one professor told me, who was very funny, um, as he was explaining how exams work, he said, you're all very talented, capable, smart, uh, hardworking people. That said, some people do better than others in law school. (laughs) Um, but so, you know, for me, it was like, it was really, um, you know, it was frustrating. It was like, you know, the kind of like the first time in life that I really got knocked back hard, at least in school, um, where like, you know, I, I thought something was going to work out some way and it did not at all. And it just seemed like it wasn't, you know, I was kind of like screwed in a way. So, um. Although, there, I mean, there were other people in that boat, too. Um, uh, so what I did, actually, I have a, a funny story about, like, the whole law school thing, if I can go off on a tangent for a second. Oh, yeah. Sure, so, you do whatever you want. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's, there's a big secrecy with law school grades. I mean, I knew some people's grades, and they knew mine, because, like, we shared them, but the vast majority of people in the school, I did not know, you know, like where they stood in the class or any of that. You do see some things like if people make law review that's based on your grades. So, you know, people would see like, oh, so-and-so made law review. They must have gotten really good grades. Um, but during my 
2L summer, which is the summer between 2 and 3L year, um, there was a, an email that went out to the school, like to everyone on a certain list, uh, a listserv of people from the class of 2015 that had ever met with the Office of Clerkships. And the clerkship office is we have a person that tries to place people in federal clerkships, which are very competitive. And there's a lot kind of that goes into that. And it's it's a big process. Um, a lot of it is like grade dependent, but also geographic dependent, and all sorts of stuff. But the clerkship director thought that she was sending out an email to these people, which was about half of the class of 2015, which is the class of 2015 was about 350 students. So, you know, half of that received this email one day. The heading was supposed to be, or the heading of the email was uh, District District of Maryland Clerkship Openings for 2015, which she attached the wrong file, however. The file that she attached was the was her, like, master list of everyone in the class of 2015 that had ever met with her. And it included their GPA, their oh. unofficial. Yeah. Virginia is one of the schools that doesn't publish an official class rank, even though you can take the GPAs and rank them. It included the students' unofficial class rank. It included if they had information of, you know, where you went to undergrad, what judges you had interviewed for, if you had interviewed with any judges. Uh if you had prior work experience before law school that was relevant, it would include that. If you had, um, you know, political connections one way or the other, it would indicate that too. Or if you wanted to clerk for a judge of a particular political bent. So she sent this on one random afternoon to half the people in the class. And, you know, I kind of felt bad for her because she sent it and then she like tried to recall the email but we use, G, like, Virginia's email is through Gmail, and there isn't a recall function. So it, then she sent out an email, like, 20 minutes later that said, that that was sent a mistake. Please don't open it. But, of course, a lot of people had opened it. And it made it to, like, um, you know, there's uh, publications that are dedicated to covering this kind of stuff, like covering law school and the legal field. Like, there's one called Above the Law. That list went to above the law. After that, there was an email from the from the dean of the of the law school apologizing for what happened and explaining that explaining how she accidentally clicked on the wrong file and that's how this all happened. And then he added in this side note that he said it was actually very unlucky that it happened because they were about to they were in the process of switching to a new system that would be as protective of that list as it was of social security numbers. And the ironic thing of that was the summer before the university of Virginia accidentally leaked a bunch of students, social security numbers. So Ooh. I don't know if, the, if that new system is going to be all that helpful anyway. Um, <laughs> but then like later that day, you know, I, I felt that this was like the worst day of that woman's life. She called, she called everyone on the list personally to talk to them and explain what happened and apologize. And I, I think some people were like, you know, very angry with her. I didn't care. Um, you know, it's a human mistake. But so then for a lot of people in the class, people then knew where 
other people stood if they looked at the list. Wow. Yeah, that's such an easy mistake to make. I, mean, I think most people have made, you know, attached the wrong document, and rarely does it matter. You know, you just kind of correct yeah. it. But that's, oh, man, that's a bad one. Wow. So one of my roommates during law school, um, it wasn't something that we like met each other and said we want to be roommates. It was I was staying in this place that was specifically for it was a private private apartment complex for law students. And um, so one of the people in there, he he was like he was all he cared about was school um he for five of the six semesters of law school he had the highest gpa um but he there was a rumor that that because that's like all he cared about was the only thing in his resume that really mattered to him was gpa um he actually kept the rumor was that you know i was i don't think i was on his radar i was very much an idiot compared to him um (laughs) But he, you know, he was very much someone who would look at who was in different classes and make sure that the classes that he was in didn't have too many students that had high enough GPAs for his rankings. He would have a chart that would detail students with different GPAs. So he knew as he was choosing his classes, like who was in his classes and when he would switch out because of a class was like too overloaded with high GPA students and stuff like that. To so play the it, bell curve game. Well, it was it was very funny because he had the highest GPA for five of the six semesters, but then he lost it in the very last semester. <laughs> That's because funny. like, well, you know, his and I knew what, exactly what he wanted to do. His whole goal was to have the highest GPA possible to like boost his application as much as he could so that he could eventually clerk for the U.S. Supreme Court. Um which I think like three or four of the people that I graduated with have done that. That is the hardest job for a young lawyer to attain because the justices of the U.S. Supreme Court hire, they each get four clerks. So that's about 40, 40 a year that get this job. If you get that job, literally you could get a job anywhere. And right now the market, if you Assigning bonus to go to a private firm after clerking for the for a Supreme Court justice is like, last I saw, it was like two hundred seventy five thousand dollars. Wow. Did he get it? So, uh, no, not yet. Um, okay. He may, because you know, someone that I graduated with is doing that next year. There's people that have already done it, but you know, people do it like up, you know. Even a handful of years out of law school, people are still, um, you know, applying for that position because it, it is what it is. Um, it's the because, I mean, you're working for like, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg for a year. Right, right. Wow, that's incredible. So I guess so from pharmacy school, like there wasn't this like super competition that you're describing. So, like, we were all fairly – it wasn't the bell curve. We were fairly incentivized to, to like, group study and all that. Did, that. did that occur in law school, or was it pretty much every man for himself? Oh, no, there's definitely group study. Um, okay. Like, I, like I was in a group. Uh, so, 
the way it works is in your 1L year, you get put into sections. And for that, so at Virginia, it's groups of 30. So every, um, every class for my first semester, I took with those same 30 people. But the classes were between, they were either 30 students, 60 students, or 90 students. So what you'd have is like, you know, I was in section L. So section L would have like, let's say torts. We had torts with, I think it was section G. So you have those two uh, sections combining for a class. But then section L would take Civ Pro with like, that was a 90 person class. So that was like with section B and with let's say section, I don't know, H. So, um, I, you know, my first semester, I was in a study group with a, a group of a, a hand, like four or five people from my section. And then, you know, sometimes like people kind of filter in and out of study groups. As you went forward and started to make your own schedule, you know, you would study with people or not. Um, there was competition, but there's enough like, you know, there's enough high grades to go around where people are more than willing to work together. And if you have you have you seen the movie uh, 21 Jump Street? Yeah. Okay. So law school, law school is a lot like um, the first scene in the movie when they go to school, not the first scene in the movie, the first scene that they're back in high school when Channing Tatum, you know how he's in the parking lot, him and Jonah yeah. Hill. And, yeah. and he's, he's like, you know, he's making fun of the kid. Look at him. He's trying. He's trying. He's actually trying. That's kind of a lot. <laughs> what law school is like <laughs> where you like you make fun of people for trying except everyone is trying everyone's trying to like look like they're they're not trying like they don't care <laughs> yeah for at least for a lot of the semester especially like your first semester there's a lot of that because you know there is this book called 1l which was written by this guy named scott Turow who went to harvard law school and it was pretty much a journal of his first year in law school and it was really bleak. Like, you know, it, it talked about how it was like the worst time of his life, how it was so competitive, how the professors would like purposely try to embarrass the students in class through the Socratic method where you get called on and you're called on for the whole class. The professor would just ask you random questions about the case that you're covering. You have to kind of like know everything. And if not, you get mocked. Um, you know, and he went to law school in like the seventies. Um, that was kind of like understood as what law school was like at the time. There was another movie called the paper chase where one of the characters attempted suicide because of the stress of law school, because it was also, you know, a story about someone that went to Harvard law school, but like this person was like a 4.0 student and was used to doing well. And he was not, he could not handle that. This was so much different, so much different than what he was used to. And it was so difficult and everyone that he was in class with was an intelligent person that worked really hard. And he was just, he did not stand out like he had used, he used to in other walks of life. Um, so, you know, law school started to realize that students were extremely unhappy and developing some very negative tendencies, which is also exacerbated in the profession of law. It has the highest alcoholism rate of any profession. Um, it's just a, it's a stressful field. So what law schools did is they wanted to focus more on making everything fun. And Virginia really did that a lot. So like I had my section 
but then I also had, um, we had like peer advisors, which are two and three L students that volunteer to do this. And they're essentially like people that could kind of like show you the ropes for law school. But really a lot of their focus was on like doing social stuff. And so they were making sure that you were going to parties and going out and do participating in like the various social events that occurred throughout the year. Um, you know, and then they would talk to you about like what you do to study and like pretty much they focused on all the stuff except for studying. I'm like, you know, you got to make sure that you take time to relax. Got to make sure that, you, you know, if you exercise, make sure you exercise, make sure you're sleeping right. Um, which I, obviously all those things are important, but at the end of the day, it's a lot of work. Um, but I guess that law school is a lot like high school because, you know, for most law schools, they're in one building and we were one of the largest law schools in the country and we had 360 students in our class. So, you know, I mean, you and I went to high school, we graduated 370 students. So right, right. And we knew, you know, we know most of the people. So like in law school, you know, most of the people, if you're at all social and there's, you know, there's all sorts of gossip, like there's always section romances where people within a section would start dating. Um, sometimes that doesn't go so well, like if there's a breakup, because <laughs> then if you break up with that person, you're, you see them all the time because you have the same schedule. Um, you know, and some people handle that kind of stuff better than others. There is a statistic that they told us that in a given law school year, about 10% of the student class ends up marrying each other. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it makes you sense. Know. You spend a lot of time together. Yeah. Well, and if you, especially at one of these higher law schools where people are, you know, the, the, the like, I'll say like the pinnacle opportunity to kind of like open to them. Um, our relationship can move really fast because it's such a formative time of your professional life. Because, you know, you're you're starting law school and before you know it, you're going through your interviews and, you know, that's going to be like, oh, you know, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to work in, let's say, regulatory law in D.C. I'm going to move to D.C. after law school. And it's going to be great. And then, you know, I have a girlfriend and she's going to be a litigator and she's working at, you know, uh, she's working at Jones Day in D.C. too. So, you know, our life is just like coming together where after this, we're going to be going to the same place and you know, we're going to be in the same career. We're going to have like a similar schedule. So the relationships can move pretty fast. And also these are people that some of them aren't just people that are like me who went straight through. In fact, the majority of my classmates did something between undergrad and law school, usually like for, you know, let's say two years, but some were a little older than that even. Um, so, you know, a lot of these people, I've already kind of done some things besides school. So they have a little more worldview of what they want from their life. Okay. So you, you graduate law school. When do you take the bar? Is that something that happens very quickly or is there time in between? So after you graduate from law school and it's actually the people that are going through it now, it sucks for them because the schedule is thrown off. 
Um, but after law school, pretty much within like two weeks after you graduate, you're st you start to study for the bar because the bar is offered twice a year. It's offered in July, at the end of July or at the end of February. So if you graduate from law school, you know, in, uh, in the spring, you pretty much plan to take the July bar in whatever state. And it doesn't matter what state you're taking it in because they all administer the exam at the same time. Um, okay. Obviously, whatever state you go to, it varies, like what the substance of the exam is, although that's changing less because now some states are doing, they have adopted what's called the uniform bar exam, where there's a lot of the exam that's the same, and then there's like a small section that's state-specific. Okay. But like, so... Um, what you do is a lot of, like a lot of my classmates were taking either the Virginia bar exam because they were going to be practicing in DC or they were going to take the New York bar exam because they were going to be practicing in, uh, New York or DC, DC. You don't really take DC's bar exam. You take a, a, a different state, whatever state you want and wave in. Okay. Um, but it's kind of like, it's it's very stupid in a sense. It's like a, it's, it's a racket because what you, what you have to do is you have to purchase a bar prep course, which, uh, you know, they'll run you anywhere from like to an actual course will run you anywhere from like a little under $2,000. to like some of them are like $3,500. Oh. So after paying for, you know, years of legal education, in order to best prepare for the bar, you then buy a bar exam. Some of them have an in-person class component. Like a lot of my classmates stayed in Virginia for that summer because they could, if they wanted to, they could go. And there's like a few main bar prep companies. So let's say Barbary is one of them. They would go, if they wanted to, they can go in person to take Barbary's classes or they could do the video version. Um, and for a lot of these people, like the people that were going to firms, your firm will pay for your bar prep course. Or um, some companies, if you're going into public interest, they'll offer like a public interest discount. Um, there's some ways that you can get free bar prep courses, but those aren't highly advertised ahead of time. So they usually involve working for the bar prep company, which, you know, I didn't know at the time or else I would have done that and would have saved some right. money. <laughs> but uh, actually... Uh, the fellowship I had, it paid for my bar prep course, so it wasn't a wasn't a thing. But um, so, you know, what I did is after, you know, I took like a week off and hung out um, and like said goodbye to, you know, my friends that, uh, you know, that were still there and were in the process of leaving. Then I moved back to my parents' house and uh, spent that summer prepping for the bar and some people say that it's like really, really frustrating and taxing or whatever. Um, I mean, for me personally, it, it was not because, you know, you just, uh, I knew that you just have to pass. And so some, some people like overthink it and want to like get the best score possible, but you just, you know, it doesn't matter. You just pass or you fail. Um, but so, you know, I moved back and spent the summer doing my online bar prep course. 
And, uh, you know, that took me to the end of July. And the way Ohio does it is, I mean, every state has an in-person requirement, but depending on the state, there's different locations. Ohio has it all in one location. Usually it's in Columbus. The year that I took it, it was in Wilmington, Ohio, which is like in between Columbus and Cincinnati and is literally in the middle of nowhere. Uh, (laughs) There's this convention center. The The only real big event that it has every year are horse shows. Like they take out the uh you know the the flooring to put in dirt for these indoor horse shows wait so, is that is that um there's like an robertson. exit with a wendy's there's like a yes. wendy's a gas station yes. and like a, okay wow that's in the middle of absolutely nowhere oh i know and like <laughs> you know it was kind of you know in some of these places if it's in like a, a large city you could like stay nearby i didn't know that I was going to be taking the Ohio bar exam until like pretty late in the game. So the, ho- the apparently the hotel for the, for the Robert center was booked within like 10 minutes of them announcing that the exam was in the Robert center because whatever school in Ohio told their people, told, told all their students, this is where the exam is to so book, you know, book your room in the next 10 minutes or you're not going to get one. Wow. So I had to stay in a hotel like, 20 minutes away in Xenia, which also nothing going on there either. Xenia um, with an X. <laughs> yeah. Although it was kind of funny because there were a handful of like coming from out of state, from an out of state law school. I didn't know a bunch, I didn't know very many people that were taking the Ohio bar exam, but like, Three of the people I knew were at that hotel in Xenia. So it was like really, really ironic. There was uh, someone that I know. Uh, I I took, I knew that he was taking the exam as well because we would chat every now and again through email. And he agreed that we drive to the exam he, or he suggested that we drive to the exam together every morning to save gas. And I didn't really care. So I said, fine. And it just meant me driving every day. <laughs> and it's, um, but I got some real pearls from him of, uh, just, I, 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 I was just like, it was the weird, it was a very weird three days because I didn't sleep at all. Like the night before the first exam, or the first day of the exam. So during the exam, I was like practically falling asleep because I also, you're not allowed to chew gum. So I, I'm used to chewing gum when I study. And so I didn't have any gum to chew and I was dead tired and it was very cold. So I just was very close to falling asleep. Um, but then, you know, him and I, like when we drive home during the day, at the end of the day, he would want to do like a whole run through of the exam, which I didn't, you know, I'm kind of in, some people want to talk about that stuff. Some people don't, it didn't matter to me. So I said that fine, we could talk about it. I felt so much more confident listening to him talk about it because I would hear things that he would say. I was like, Oh, I know that that's wrong. I know that he missed this <laughs> and he missed that. Um, and then like one day 
we were talking about during, so that morning, he told me that he doesn't like drinking caffeine because it makes him jittery. Because I suggest, we were talking and I suggested he drink coffee or something. Um, But then on the way home, he was talking about something. And I said, I said, I mentioned that there was a placebo effect. And he told me that that doesn't work on him. (laughs) And literally, I like yelled in the parking, like, as we were waiting to get out of the exam in the parking lot of like all the other you know, a thousand people trying to take their cars and leave. I just yelled at him, how the fuck would you know if the placebo effect works? That's the whole purpose. <laughs> no, no, no. It works on everybody else. Uh, not me, though. No, I'm, I'm immune to the placebo effect. <laughs> to his credit, he wasn't offended by that. <laughs> um, but... Another weird thing about the the bar exam is like that was the first year that they held it in the Roberts Center, and they did they had a very poor understanding of like what people eat, I guess, and like lunching or lunch in general. So like you have time for lunch, and you could you could have brought your lunch, or you could have, uh, but you're not allowed to bring it in the exam room because it's highly regulated, so you have to leave it outside. Or um, they had different food stations set up, and there was like that Wendy's, but like you know that who's going to wait in line all that time for the Wendy's when it's going to take forever. Sure. Um, so I went to this, there was a, they advertised like a cookout in the back lot, like an outdoor tented cookout. And I went there and literally they had like, it was all meat. It was like, <laughs> they only had like brisket and hot dogs and hamburgers. And uh, I think they had pulled pork too. There was like a little bit of potato salad and cookies. It was like the worst Try food. <laughs> yeah, because you finish the t- you like the way that it worked is you went for like three and a half hours in the morning and then like four hours in the afternoon or something like that. And there's like a 15 minute break during each of those. So like, but a 15 minute break where you're not allowed to leave really you're just you're only allowed to go to the bathroom or sit there and talk to whoever else is at your table um so i mean it was those three days i haven't lived a very hard life those were three of the worst days of my life (laughs) (laughs) that's what i like i always hear it's just like the bar exam just being miserable and i like you know i've taken big tests in my life but they're always like a couple hours and you're done. It'd be like one, like a morning session and then you're out, right? It's mm-hmm. not three solid days of testing like that. Like I can't and, even imagine. So it's, um, I was, the last day is only a half day, which is, which is nice. Um, but, but like, you know, it's, it's not the, the hardest exam in the world by any stretch of the imagination. It's just, it's like a fatigue thing because there's so much and it's all like, it's some, there's a lot of essays. There's one day that's dedicated entirely to multiple choice, but it's, you know, it's, it's just a lot of processing information. Um, but, you know, for first time test takers, the numbers change year to year, but pretty much like in Ohio about, I think about like 80% of first time test takers pass. And 
one thing that you see during the exam is you have to sit in the same seat each day and it's like pre-assigned. Some, some, like when you come back the second day, there's some seats that are empty that weren't on the first day, Ooh. which is very sad for those people. But for the yeah. rest of you that are taking the exam, their score counts. They're part of the 20% that aren't passing. Oh, okay. So, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, I would say it's like, a, you know, it's, it's a lot of work to prepare, but it, if you're, unless you, you have like, um, you know, a real bad test phobia or there's, you know, some type of extenuating circumstance, it's not, uh, it's not too bad. Of a of an exam, just except for the fact that it's so long, um, and you know, like my my prep, it wasn't really really stressful. Um, there were times that I got annoyed because I like, you know, wanted to do other stuff, but I had to spend more time studying. But it's um, you know, it's not. It's people associate it with a lot of stress because you spend three years in law school. And you think, you know, I graduated law school. Now I'm a lawyer. Well, not really. I actually have to then pass this other exam. So, you know, the fear is, oh, if I if I fuck up this exam, then that was three years for nothing. But, you know, there's a lot of people that don't pass the bar exam on the first time that then take it again and pass it. For instance, uh, Hillary Clinton didn't pass the bar exam on her first go round, and neither did Kamala Harris. Oh, wow. So, you know, uh, just because, you know, people that are intelligent, um, some sometimes just have a bad day. Like I knew someone who she didn't pass the exam on her first time, but that was because the night before the the exam, she was stuck in the ER with like terrible food poisoning. Oh, geez. So, you know, you really feel for those people. And then, um, like once I, so I, I finished the exam and then I had like, like a month or so, a little over a month of not working because I would, I didn't start at my job until September, like September 15th, maybe, um, somewhere around there. So, but then the weird thing about the bar is you don't find out for months, like, the, in Ohio, they announce the bar exam results on like usually the Friday before Halloween. So um, at that you point, took it in I July. Think, yeah, it takes months to grade um, because it's a lot of essays, and they have you get the way in Ohio they do it is you get a numerical score for each of your essays, and they have to give it to people and the and the they're supposed to be kind of like weighted, like how the, what number you get is kind of weighted, I guess. I don't know. It's like, it's kind of like black box shit. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it is. Uh, and going back to law school, there's a joke that I've heard where, you know, all, all these, almost all the exams are essay based exams. So you can look at your essay and you could look at someone else's and see like, you know, we pretty much said the same thing, but you got, you know, you got an A minus and I got a B. And so there's a, 
professor, someone went to a professor and complained and said, like, you know, we looked at our exams and we wrote pretty much the same thing, but you gave us two very different grades. And so the professor has the exams in his hands and he holds one in one hand and one in the other and says, before the cigar, after the cigar. (laughs) (laughs) But um, for the Ohio bar exam, they announced the results at like, the website goes live at I think seven in the morning where they just put out a list of all the names of the people that pass. So even though you, you know, you feel confident that you passed, you are very nervous because, you know, what if I didn't? And so uh, you don't sleep a lot the night before, I guess. And then you, you know, you wake up, like I woke up at like, I woke up at like six that day and I made myself breakfast because I thought, well, I'm either going to pass and it'll be nice to have some breakfast to enjoy before I have to go to work or I fail and it'll be a good thing that I made this breakfast because (laughs) I'll need to do something to occupy my time. (laughs) So, you know, I get on at 7 a.m. And of course, if you get on right at 7 a.m., the site it it's crashes to that traffic, yeah. <laughs> and so you get, then you get on at seven o three, and then <laughs> you do the control F and you type your name in. And some years they don't make the document text readable, so oh. <laughs> you, you, hit, you hit enter, and it's like, oh god, I'm not here, I'm not here, I'm not here. <laughs> um, but the year that I did it, I made, I did a test run first on one of the names that I saw on the page. And so it's like, oh, okay, it's text readable. So then I just put my name and I saw it. I was like, oh, well, that's good. (laughs) This is what I wanted. (laughs) And then I started searching for people that I knew that were also taking the bar exam to see whether they passed or not. A lot of people I knew didn't pass on the first go. So that was kind of awkward. Well, so why? Like, was it a test phobia thing? Was it a knowledge-based thing? Like, what do you... What's your thought? Um, uh, let me think. Some of them, I would guess they just didn't really prepare. Okay. Like there was the one the one person I knew that I, I heard about what happened after the fact where she was in the ER, so I understood that. Sure. Um, you know, there was, I, you know, someone I knew was like, oh, I could see that, that they're like a, they're like a pretty intelligent person. I just don't think they, they just thought they, they tried to put in the bare minimum and they put in less than the bare minimum. Um, there's some people where like you see it and you're like, oh yeah, I could see I could see that as kind of plausible. Um, you know, knowing like kind of their I guess they're kinda what I know about them. Um, that because you know, there are uh, some people that if you want, if like, if anyone wants to go to law school, they can find a law school that will take them. Okay. So, you know, that's, that's what some people that, that don't pass, they're kind of like, you know, they, that's what happened to them. Um, which is, you know, it obviously ties back to the problem about like the false advertising in law schools and stuff. Sure. But, um, yeah, so that 
I guess those are kind of the camps. Uh, you know, some people it's just like, oh, I did not expect that at all. Um, and then there's, I know some people have like kind of test phobia. Although the interesting thing is that, you know, the now it's not the same, but it, when I started law school, it was the LSAT. You had to take the LSAT in order to get into law school and you had to, you know, that was like, the main driving factor as to what school you got into was your LSAT score. And that's a standardized test. And so, you know, for, for people that did poorly on that, they, they may just not be very good test takers. And then they have, you know, even if they overcome that, they still then have to take the bar exam, which is a much longer standardized test. Yeah. Like the most intense standardized test you'll ever take two and a half days. I could see where if you have a little test phobia, that would throw you off. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, it's a, it's all in like, a, there's some people that are, you know, uh, very good writers, but having to write in such a condensed time period is hard. Like there's a section of the Ohio bar exam that where you, you're given like two essay prompts for an, and you have an hour to complete both. So you really have 30 minutes a question. And there are these kind <clears> of <throat> long fact patterns that have a question at the end. And so if you're not someone that's like naturally organized in your thoughts, that could be problematic because you have to take the time to read the question, you have to take time to think out a response, and you have to write it. Sure. And I would think too, you know, I don't I don't know how much writing went on in law school, but like just the the physical act of writing that much like i can't do that if i write for more than like five or ten minutes at a time my hands like cramping up like i you know oh, in high school um, i could do it but i couldn't pull it off now hand, it's not handwritten oh um, thank god yeah <laughs> well here's here's another part of the racket you have to buy special test software so like in addition to paying for the you have to pay to take the bar obviously and you have mm -hmm. to pay for like back, you know, your background check and like stuff. But then you also have to buy special test software and the test software has a purpose. The purpose is it makes sure it locks you out from doing anything else on your computer other than using the exam. Sure. Sure. Because like you're not allowed to bring in other material materials or anything. Um, but you have to pay for that. And so that's, you know, just another cause. And it's like, and it's something that you can only use once and you never use again. Right. And you have to, if you, it's like it's like over a hundred dollars. Oh my there gosh. You. Yeah, the legal profession is kind of a racket. Yeah, they they got you guys. So you yeah. bring your own computer. Like, what if your computer like craps out halfway through? You're just screwed. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, that sucks. In in law school, the way it worked is, um. We also didn't have test software in law school. We just had an honor code, which pretty much meant, which pretty much meant if you cheated and they found out, you were thrown out of the school. Yeah. But uh, you know, there were you some like once you get past one all year, you could take your tests at any time during designated periods. Like, you know, if you, there's a two week exam period, and you could take your tests at like either beginning at nine a.m. or beginning at one a, one p.m. And 
you just go to one of the appointed rooms. You like, pick up your test, you go to one of the appointed rooms, and then you have to return your test by a certain time. Um, it, but if your computer conks out, you could take it to an IT desk and they could see what happened and they could fix it and give you your time back. Okay. But I don't, th I don't recall the bar exam doing that. And it was, I also remember during the bar exam that I, it was, oh, it was so fucking stupid. Like people, like, uh, in between when they were reading things, you weren't allowed to stand up. Like when you're getting your instructions at the end of the day of what to do overnight and get ready for the next day. Like some people started standing up and the lady like yelled at them and said you had to remain in your seat. And it was like <laughs> you were in grade school. <laughs> Everybody hold hands on the way to the bathroom. <laughs> well, I also, you also have to take this test called the MPRE, the Model Professional Rules Exam. Um, every state requires it. Different states require different scores. It's a precursor to professional ethics. Okay. Um, it's 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 so easy. Um, I literally like. I mean, a lot of it's just kind of intuitive, um, based on living life. Uh, but I had to go to a different. Me and one of my buddies, we didn't get to take the exam at Virginia because by the time we signed up, all the slots at UVA were filled out. So we had to go an hour away to University of Richmond to take the MPRE there. And so there, th during that, it said that you, you had to physically, with your hands, write out an affirmation about like saying that you were going to follow the rules or something, and you had to sign it. And so someone asked during that if we had to sign, if we had to write it in cursive or if we could write it otherwise. And literally the proctor who looked like she was she was in her 70s and was ready for some bingo she <laughs> she read the thing and she said well it says sign so i think it means you have to write it out in cursive and <laughs> people started i didn't do that i just wrote it out normally and people started flipping out and then someone asked to go to the bathroom and she like did a big thing about how you're not supposed to ask to go to the bathroom during the instructions and <laughs> I felt like I was in grade school. Wow. <laughs> so, Kevin, you know, we, we, we've already talked about a couple of misconceptions. You know, one was my thought that, uh, you know, trial lawyers did a lot of trials. Um, mm -hmm. you, you informed me that there are very few people that do that. Uh, and, you know, some other things. What are, what are some of the, the common misconceptions that you hear uh, you know, at a at a party where you, people find out you're a lawyer, what are the things, the myths that you're constantly debunking? Um, well, I saw a big one is like that you know, quote unquote, the law. Um, you know, I I don't really if if you had a legal question for me. The odds are is I don't know the answer, um, you know, and that's how it is for most lawyers. Like, even though I have practiced in like a few different areas of law, you know, that doesn't mean I what you what you learn in law school is not much. But the whole idea is it's supposed to be training you to think like a lawyer 
as opposed to teaching you like a substantive body of knowledge. It's instead supposed to be teaching you a skill, like a, a, a mindset. So it's kind of like the Marines, you know. Um, it's just like teaching you how to analyze and think through problems. So like, you know, people will say like, oh, you, you must know about this. And like, really, no, I have no clue about whatever it is you're asking. Um, you know, uh, there's no, and these days, lawyers aren't really generalists. They're all specialists. Like, um, you know, people think of like back in the olden days when there's like, you know, one or two lawyers in the town and they're like the town lawyer. And so, you know, whatever quandary you have, you go to them and you talk to them about it. And that's just not really how it is. Um, and, you know, this is kind of un unrelated, but somewhat related. Uh, over the, you know, the last... I don't know however many years, maybe 40 or so years, you know, law used to be much more thought of as a profession and it still is a profession, but it's, there's a much greater understanding now that law, the law and law firms operate as businesses. Okay. And that so, makes, yeah, like, that makes sense. yeah. So like when we're, you know, when we're evaluating cases that come to us, we're evaluating them a lot from a business perspective. I guess, does that, so it's a necessary evil, right? Like you can't, if lawyers don't make money, if law firms don't make money, they're not going to be around. Yeah. But like, does that, does that hurt on the inside a little bit? Like, have you seen cases passed up that, you know, morally or ethically like should be taken up, but there's not enough money at the end of it. And so they're passed on. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's an, some would say that it's not a necessary evil um, and that that's one of the problems with the legal profession is that it's shifting to what was a profession to what is now a business. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of cases that come through where, you know, horrific things happen to people and um, there's just no source of recovery for them. Like uh, one thing that's really common is like car crashes, right? You know, people get in car crashes and they get severely injured. Um, the law only requires in Ohio that you have minimum auto coverage is like $25,000 a person. So, like, you know, let's say um, you, you get into a car accident with someone and you lose your legs. Well, you, you, someone has to pay, right, for your all your surgeries and your prosthetics and um, not to mention like if you lost, you know, you lost time from work to get your, your money back from the time you lost from work and all that, you yeah. know, that money has to, if you to actually get that, that money has to come from somewhere. Right. right. Well, if you're just hit, if you're hit by just someone, you know, just a random driver that has minimum insurance, they're only going to pay you $25,000 because they don't have the money. Otherwise, I mean, sure. What you could do is like, uh, you know, like you could sue them and get an excess verdict and then take, uh, try and collect on them otherwise. But what will happen is that person is just going to declare bankruptcy because they, they don't have the money to pay you. Um, 
So it, you know, that's a kind of a common thing where someone gets catastrophically injured in like a car accident, but there's just, there's no money to pay. Like there, there's nowhere to get the money that they need to get the recovery that to be made whole. So that's unfortunate. Wow. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because working in, you know, emergency and, and intensive care, you know, I see the the side when that right after that accident happens, you mm-hmm. know, and, and you, you know, you see the gruesome injury and all that. And like, I, I don't put a whole lot of thought into like, you know, obviously from a health side I do, but outside of that, like, you know, the fact this person isn't going back to work for a long time and all that, you know, you don't really oh, yeah. think about it in the, in that moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, yeah. there's all that and all that it's expensive. It's crazy expensive. Oh yeah. Well, and like, you know, that, that drives like a lot of the decisions that we make in terms of, you know, whether we could really help someone with a case. I mean, um, unless, you know, in the way that things are, unless you happen to be injured by this an independently wealthy person that's unable to hide their assets, which is, you know, a lot of people, even if people do have money, there's ways to hide your assets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the real recoveries that you get are when you sue companies because one, companies have much larger insurance policies and or they have actual assets you can collect from. Like, you know, if... So if we were to sue UH, UH has insurance policies that, you know, that really drive the the litigation. Or if, um, like, the Cleveland Clinic is self-insured, so it doesn't really matter whether there's an insurance policy or not, because the way that they're set up is that they they pretty much will have the money to pay. So, you know, that's, I mean, it it sucks, uh, especially you know, there's people that come through and like, you know, even assuming that they have like a really good case, if there's just no one to sue, you know, there's nothing you could really do for them. Sure. Um, and then, but then there's, there's also other cases where, you know, even if someone's life is uprooted, they're, they're not necessarily a case that you could really take on for reasons of it's hard to get a, like the, the cost of what you put into the case isn't really worth it. Um, you know, so if you, you know, if you sue someone and, or if someone has something that monetarily doesn't really net out to a lot of money, it's expensive to, to bring a lawsuit, you know, like, uh, like what we were talking about, a medical malpractice case runs you over a hundred thousand dollars to take to trial. So, you know, if it's something that really you, you can only recover, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, it's not worth it for anyone to take the case because, the money just goes to the costs. Yeah, so it's a net zero, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, huh. I mean, it's yeah, it's unfortunate. Uh, you know, there's a lot of and like what I do now. There's a fair amount of tough conversations that you have to have with people where they call in and they think that they you know have a case and you have to explain to them for one reason or another why your firm can't take it. And some people obviously understand that more than others. What are some other other misconceptions that the public has? But, uh, well, obviously everything on TV is like really wrong. Uh, <laughs> oh, say it ain't so, Kevin. 
Well, um, but I mean, that's, that's just because it's made for TV. And so you have to make things interesting. I mean, the average case takes at minimum a year to go all, to go the distance. A lot of times it takes a lot more than that. Um, you know, there's, there's cases that take multiple years and that's not even assuming any appeals. So, you know, when sometimes people come in and they say this happened to me and I, I need money for it and you say, well, we can work on a lawsuit, but you're not going to see any money for a long time. And, you know, even if you have like a, you know, what you think is a slam dunk case, it's not like the other side just going to immediately pay up. You have to do a lot to show them that, look, you can't go to trial on this. You're going to lose. You're going to get a big verdict against you. So you might as well just settle now. Yeah. I don't know. A lot of it is, it's, it's frustrating because like, especially when you're dealing with, I don't, people that aren't. So when I worked on the other side, we would be like the law firm would be dealing with an in-house counsel for a company. So that's someone that is an attorney as well. So they, they understand all of these things. Um, but a lot of times in these, in like what I'm doing now, I'm dealing with people that don't have any understanding of how the legal process works. So it's a lot of explaining how the legal process works to them. And it's, you know, for a lot of people, it's not what they really thought of at all. And they don't understand like the time that goes into it and how, how long things take to get anywhere. Yeah. And it's, I don't think it's the public's fault, but you, you do see what's on TV and it's oh, like, yeah. Oh, they brought a case and the next week they're in trial and then they get a payout the next day. You know, it's, it's the timelines are just so much faster. I don't think anybody outside of it would think that it takes years, you know, maybe weeks, months, but definitely not years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, it, it's odd, especially, you know, I, you, you see these shows and they go to trial like immediately, even if, even if uh, you, you, you know, you putting aside that you compress that it's in like a half hour, an hour, people think that like, you're, you know, you file a lawsuit and you go to trial like three weeks later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, which is, yeah, not the case. Uh, but, you know, it's funny. I like watching a lot of legal shows. So, you know, the fact that it, it doesn't bother me that it's not anything. Like, the fact that the shows are inaccurate doesn't bother me. If they were accurate, they'd be, they'd suck to watch. <laughs> It'd be super boring. <laughs> Oh, it's like you, I mean, in three seasons, watch this trial go or watch this uh, case go to trial. Well, I mean, that's why a lot of people, you know, Better Call Saul gets a lot of attention because it's much more realistic. But some people also complain that the show's boring when they cover the legal stuff. But, like, you know, I guess this is another kind of misconception. My days are like extremely boring, there's not much excitement in there at all. And I think some people think that there is, and there just there is not. <laughs> well, um, so my first real like experience with lawyers, I was on a, a pharmacy rotation with with a guy who was who was um, kind of a, a director level, and yeah. it was this contract for this software, right? And the software was it was real like pharmacy centric software, and 
we he's like hey you know there's a contract call it at one and i'm like oh how long is that gonna go and he's like oh that's that's the rest of our day and it's essentially <laughs> you know two or three lawyers on like for the for the hospital and then two or three lawyers for the the company and just like the verbiage that they would argue about. Now, they had already sent drafts back and forth, right? And so this was the point where mm -hmm. the drafts had already been sent, the notes, all of that. Um, each side had made some concessions, and this was like, we're going to hash it out on the phone. And it was it was three hours, and it's like, you know, I don't like the word, the use of the word the in this sentence. It should be, you know, whatever. Oh, yeah. And it's just like, oh, wow, like, this is what you guys do. Like, how much time did you spend reading this? And it had to have been hours. So what those attorneys are are transactional attorneys. And that's that's not something that I've really practiced in. I mean, we you know, we have to do contracts sometimes, but it's really just like settlements. But for those transactional attorneys, it's like I mean, that's a lot of what it is, is like exchanging drafts back and forth and having these phone calls where they go through all these changes. Um you know, at the very high level, at like the the large mega firms, what the, what those transactional attorneys are do, do, and like one of my buddies does this. He lives in Delaware. Um, you know, he does mergers and acquisitions. And so, if a company, if a large company wants a merger, they want it done like immediately. So, you know, you have to like it's like all hands on deck. You're working on this for you know hours and hours on end for weeks on end, getting it all together and the deal could fall apart or it could go through. But like, you know, it's, that's, that's very much, uh, it's, it's a demanding job. Um, and it's just focusing. And for those kind of cases, it's like, you know, these thousands of pages of documents that are the, the agreements and, you know, one change, has reverberations across the document. So you have to be able to track that and make sure that you're catching it all the way through. Um, now, what I would say is like, for me, a lot of what I do on a day-to-day -day basis, I have a lot of phone calls, but they're not like kind of phone calls like that. They're phone calls with other other litigators talking about strategy of cases or phone calls with experts talking about like their things that we need from them. Uh, a lot of the other time is I'm just sitting at my desk. I'm at my computer and I'm, you know, I'm on like Westlaw, which is a repository that has legal cases and I'm doing legal research or I'm, you know, drafting motions or, writing memos um it's a lot of a lot about your desk you get a the, the lawyer tan is much different than the minor league baseball <laughs> tan so my question uh, is when when do you find time to chase the ambulances well <laughs> you know one thing that's pretty nice about where i work is that we don't we don't do that we don't really spend money on advertising we spend some money on marketing but most of our cases are generated through other attorneys. So like an attorney, you know, people will call into an attorney or they'll, they'll know someone like, like if something happened to you, you'd probably call me and say like, Hey, Kevin, I had this. Can you 
do you, do you do this or can you point me in the direction of someone that would? And so what, what we, where we generate a lot of our business as a firm is we get referrals from other attorneys that say, you know, this, I have this person who has this kind of case. Can you look at it and see if you think it's a case? And so what the, instead of spending money on like advertising, like Misney, who apparently makes them pay, which is, I, what he does is kind of unethical in terms of, he doesn't actually practice law anymore, which you're not supposed to do if you're, cause he, he, that guy just really takes clients and sells them off to other firms. But what we, so what we spend money on is events with four attorneys. So we're building relationships with attorneys so that they know that if something happens that's within our field of expertise, that they can come to us and we could take the case and then, you know, we, we take it and we get it handled. And then that attorney would get a referral fee for it or a co-counsel fee, you know, because some of them stay involved in the case and continue working on it. Okay. So uh, you're not actually chasing the ambulances that... That was what I was hoping was going to be the highlight of your of your day. Well, <laughs> no, the, the highlight of my day is uh, I don't really know. <laughs> it's no, there's no highlight. It's just uh, mediocre with some lowlights. Uh. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, maybe a highlight is if someone brings a treat in for the for the office. <laughs> Ooh, snack cart. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, so kevin one thing i've always wondered you know so uh every so often you get this like little trivia thing that'll pop up and it'll be like weird laws in ohio or weird laws in the u.s and you could tell they're just they're really old laws that for at some point were relevant and no longer are you know Mm -hmm. it's illegal to throw a bale of hay out of a second story window like something just ridiculous is there like at some point these laws just don't make sense um and they but they stay on the books like is there anything like do you get requests for these weird laws that really aren't aren't really relevant anymore like is that does that happen um no not really sorry uh that's all right <laughs> no but uh, i i can i can answer it well, i mean what a lot of those things are are like you said, they're they're old laws that are written that were never actually repealed. Um, so where that would come up is like, you know, whether a police officer could cite someone for that, um, you know, and a lot of times. So that's more of like a law enforcement question, and I think those laws. Uh, it varies where you are, of course, but like some of those things just don't get enforced, even though they're still like on the books. Um, but that's not, it doesn't really come up into what we would do. Although, I mean, there's all, cause you know, laws are written years and years ago and they, they remain laws and even our system of laws, like the constitution and stuff, there's, it's the world changes over time, but the words stay the same. So, you know, even for laws that are still valid and still enforced, 
how you would view, view it is much different today than you would in the past. And so there's this school of thought that like um, the, uh, I would call it like the, the kind of the conservative uh, wing of like the Supreme Court practices, it's called originalism. And so that means that the laws should be, and the, the laws should mean the same thing that they meant when they were drafted. And you should look at like what the understanding of these words were when they were drafted. So you see that come up in things like you know, uh, abortion is a big example, or um, the Second Amendment, where some people are arguing that based on what what the world was like at that time, that the, those laws were drafted, that's how they should be interpreted today. There's two main systems of law. There's, um, I actually don't even fucking know what they're called, but <laughs> one of them, one of them is like, Everything is written down, like, with succinct detail. Um, and that's the civil, like, a civil code kind of system where there's a law on the books for everything. And there's another system, which is the system that the U.S. has, where there are more broader, there are broad concepts of law. And so instead of having, like, going to the specific code provision that would apply in an instance— you look at the general understanding of you know these 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 more broadly drafted laws. Okay. Yeah, and, you don't know what it's called yeah. though. So great, great lawyer, I, Kevin Hewlett, I, good fucking lawyer. I never, I, I, I've never claimed to be good at my job. That's, oh. that's another, I will say that another misconception too. Is that people think that just because you're a lawyer, you're smart? Not that is not my experience at all. <laughs> Those of us who know Kevin best know that that's not true. Well, <laughs> literally, and like some of the stuff I work on, I like see things that the other side writes, and it's like not even a sentence. <laughs> and I, you know, I know that they went to school for many years, like I did. And it's just, it's shocking that this is what they're giving you. Um, but the way someone described it to me is, so they drew um, this, this little triangle and they explained like, you know, in the world, and, and this was during law school, they say like, you know, you kind of view yourself as a, as a spot where you are within this triangle. And he's like, at the very top, there are these people. There are these. These are the people on law review that are going to get clerkships with these top uh, top federal judges who are going to be competitive for like a Supreme Court clerkship or going to be able to maybe become a professor of law one day. And he's like, then there's you know you go down, then there's there's your other classmates, and you feel like, oh, you know, you're just kind of an average student. You're at the bottom. Uh, you know, you, you don't have anything really impressive about you. You you go here, and that's it. Um, so you feel like you're stuck at the bottom of the triangle and he's like, well, actually that's not really what it is because the triangle is much larger. And so then he draws, you know, he draws the sides down. So it's much, much bigger. And then he says like, and here's a person that went to this, you know, he starts drawing, he starts pointing out dots below and he says, here's a person that did this. And here's a person that did this. And here's a person that did this. And he said then, and here's a line and he draws a line towards the bottom of the triangle and says, 
and this is the line that's professionally incompetent. And then there's a, there's a body of law that talks about ineffective assistance of counsel in criminal proceedings. And it's actually not an ineffective assistance of counsel to fall asleep during a trial, nor is it an ineffective assistance of counsel based on uh, at least one case to show up hung, drunk and or hungover to a trial. So he, nice. you know, he points those out and he's like, but see, those are above the line. In order to go below the line, you have to be both asleep and drunk at trial. <laughs> Sleeping at trial, not an issue. <laughs> I I had this job one summer, and it was it was pretty. Uh, uh, it had its ups and downs, but the long and short was this was after my first summer of law school, or after my first. There's the summer after my first year of law school. I was in this small room with three other attorneys, and we each worked for a different judge. Um, there were four judges at this court that I worked at over the summer. And uh, two of the people there were, like, pretty cool. There was a third guy. The third guy absolutely sucked. You, We literally couldn't have any conversations because he would just dominate the conversation and would tell us pretty much that we were idiots. And... Uh, <laughs> One day, I looked over, and he was sleeping. <laughs> like, just middle of the day, just, and this guy would also, like, even when judges came in and talked to us, he would, like, talk down to them and tell them that they were wrong about things. Nice. Well, then, uh, one day, we, the, one of the people that's, like, kind of a, one of the court, like, administrators had us all go across the street to O'Donnell's for, you know, to, like, take us out um, to, like, you know, kind of, like, thanks for for working for us over the summer or whatever. Let's all have a happy hour. So um, we, we did that. But then this guy had to leave for karate class at, uh, like, 6 o'clock or something. And the rest of us, the other three of us, we stayed there for over two hours just complaining about how miserable it was working with this guy. <laughs> the common enemy. It was, it was, it was very, it was, I mean, it was, it was so great. It was just so relieving for all of us to know that we were all on the same page, that he was just like a miserable human being. He also came up with these fake stories. Like he went to he went to Mooney, and he told us that uh, there were multiple times that someone tried to attack him with a knife in the parking lot, but he used karate to beat them off. <laughs> I'm sure that happened. Yes. <laughs> All those stabbings yeah. at Mooney you hear about. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was just like. Honestly, like a faucet opened and like all the water came out. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, Kevin, I think on on the karate note, we're gonna call that a day. We we've been talking for a while. I could I could tell you other stuff, but I don't. Like I said, I think minor league baseball is probably a much more interesting world than the world of being a lawyer. We'll do part two next next summer on our oh, Frosty yeah. Live tour. 
Well, who knows? Maybe by that time I'll be I'll be fired. No, it'll, instead, I can explain to you how to work the unemployment system. <laughs> Kevin's gaming the system. He knows how it works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, no, this is this was uh, this was fun. I appreciate you bringing me on to talk about it. Well, it's a fascinating and, career. I mean, I, it, it's something that I think, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of um, even just not realizing how how many well, different areas there are to practice and, and all that. It's, it's, it's just a fascinating career. I forgot to add just the just all the sex, you know, <laughs> I swear, <laughs> throwing it at me. <laughs> That's been my understanding from watching The Grinder. Oh, well, and that's not even just Rob Lowe. No. <laughs> oh, again, if you haven't watched The Grinder yet, go go watch it. I, I think it's still on Netflix. It's fantastic. It should have been. It should have had more seasons, but it it was underappreciated. Yeah, time. Well, I was pissed when there was that article that talked about that it might, you know, they, they wanted to revive it and then they never did. Yeah. Well, now, now Roblo's doing that nine one one show. I mean, come on. Yeah, you're not going to get him back on the grinder. No, no, not at all. Um, before we end, yeah, uh, I just did, did want to say one thing. I want to wish Tyler good luck in the ACT. Yes. Well, thank you for bringing that up, Kevin, because July fourth, Tyler Kerr is going to be taking the ACT. And not only that, Kevin, we are going to be podcasting during the test. Um, so we're going to have some... Oh, can, oh can, can, you, can you bring that into the test site? Well, we are going to create the test site, and you better believe <laughs> it's going to happen. Now, for for our listeners, you're going to get it You know, maybe Sunday or Monday. Um, and it's going to be kind of the whole day, some of the intro, uh, you know, Tyler's experience when you get Tyler on a little bit during the test during his breaks uh, and then and then it'll wrap up with Tyler's score uh, and and some of his some of the thoughts amongst the group uh, but he will be our first person to take the ACT uh, it will be in a, a controlled environment at uh, at the commissioner's house Joe Reedy's house uh, we're gonna have a, a nice fourth of July party social social distancing of course but we're going to have, have Ty taking it and uh, we're going to, you know, be able to talk to some of the guys around the league. Uh, word is that one of our, our new members is going to be there also. So we're going to, it's going to be a nice little celebration of season one as we get ready for season two. So Kevin, I hope to see you there. Hi, I will be there. What, but do you have an over under on score? Oh, you know, that's been a, a nice topic of conversation. I think I think the the number is going to be twenty three is going to be the the over under number. Um, now, I, I my understanding is is tied pretty well, uh, rumored up into even th- the score of thirty uh, in high school. So he did well, uh, but you know there's a lot of very high school specific information on the act so we'll see but i i think i think i forget what number i said 23 22 so, uh, somewhere 23. in there uh, let's go with 23 then 
Um, are you, what are you taking, the over or the under? Oh, man. I think I'm going... I think it's going to be uh, over, but I'm going to take the under because I'm going to root against them. How about you? I don't know. I mean, he's he's going to be taking it sober, right, and not hungover. So yeah, that is know, a yeah. that that that's saying over to me. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's it's hard. Uh, I, I yeah, I'd probably take the over. I guess. Yeah. Since for bet, you know, unless makes this interesting. Uh, yeah, we have to figure out some some, <laughs> some betting pools. Yeah, it's finally happening. So, listeners, like I said, Sunday, maybe Monday, uh, depending on when I can get everything edited, we will we will drop that episode. We will be tweeting out of uh, at Frosty Pod uh, during the test. So you'll get some some day of information, and you will get the the final test result when that podcast drops. So we are incredibly excited here at the Frosty Podcast. Uh, Kevin, make, okay. hold on. Yeah. Can I can I can I uh, offer something? I don't, yes, please. You know, obviously it's not my house, and I can't invite people. But I think if this happened, I think we it would be people would be okay with it. Um, you know, if Jordan Pennell wanted to show up too and take the ACT on Saturday, I, I think people would respect that. You know, I think people would respect that too, and it, and that's one thing that's come up. You know, if if Pedal would want to come back in the league, uh, he would have to take the ACT to even be considered. Uh, you know, it, to to come back, and so if that is a route he wants to go, it is under the new rules where we we're not doing it in the high school anymore. We are doing it uh, privately. You know, so it's not it's not as bad of a thing, I suppose. So yeah, well, if, if Pennell, it's going on the podcast, you know, that's the thing. So it's, you're going to get publicly shamed and, or you can be a hero. I mean, you know, if Ty I, comes out here with a 26 or a 27, like that's going to be insane. I mean, but, but let's, let's think about it though. I hear people in Michigan download this podcast. I've heard Ireland has downloaded this podcast. It's all over Belgium. Uh, Whoever's oh. listening in Michigan, thank you. Uh, Idaho, we have a couple listeners, so yeah, we are we are worldwide at this point. So yeah, there's there's a following. Something to shoot for, I guess, for a panel. All that will be coming up next time. But but for Kevin, thank you very much for joining us and uh, giving us some some insight into what your day looks like. Uh, hope you get a treat tomorrow at work. Oh, me too. Thanks. Thanks, Derek. This was fun. <laughs> On behalf of Steel Valley Media, I am Derek Frost. Tony, again, is off. But next time, we will hear from him as well as many others around the league for the Frosty Podcast. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>